What's up, everyone? Just say thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoy the show, enjoy the content, just please make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow the page on Instagram at Overcoming the Divide. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Overcoming the Divide. Today, we have on Dr. John O'Loughlin. Dr. John O'Loughlin is a professor at the University of Colorado. His focus areas include the political geography of the post-Soviet Union, specifically Russian geopolitics, Eurasian de facto states, ethno-territorial nationalisms, and post-conflict societies. John is an author at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, where he has published on the diffusion of democracy, electoral geography, geography on conflict, and the political geography of Nazi Germany. So once again, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it, Professor. You're welcome. With everything going on right now, I thought it was imperative to have people such as yourself, people who have studied the Soviet Union, study that region, and discuss what's going on and to get insights from experts, for all intents and purposes. So my first question posed to you is, in 2019, Pew Research Center conducted a survey throughout the former Eastern Bloc countries regarding whether they improved the change to a multi-party system slash free market economy. These countries include Poland, Ukraine, Slovakia, and Russia. And only in Russia was less than half of the respondents in favor of the switch. And in Russia, 63% of the respondents agree with the following statement. Quote, is a great misfortune that the Soviet Union no longer exists. Unquote. That percentage from respondents was a 13-point increase from the same question posed back in 2011. Even though many Russians may disagree with the invasion of Ukraine, do you believe that the overall national Russian ethos could have played into Putin's decision to invade? Well, that survey and many others have shown um, exactly what you uh, read out, which is a real nostalgia for the former Soviet Union. And, you know, in Russia itself, Levada Center, which is the most reliable of the Russian uh, public opinion companies, has shown over the years that this nostalgia is increasing, um, especially in the last five, seven years. So it's, it's not, you know, that, that's absolutely not surprising. The question maybe is why do Russians uh, deviate from the other countries you mentioned in terms of their lack of support, let's call it, for parliamentary democracy? And again, you know, Levada have asked people what they want most from a government. And the one thing that shows up consistently is they want stability. Uh, they want a certainty around things like payment of pensions and payment of wages. Um, they look back with horror on the 1990s, which was a time of tremendous un- un- instability, upheaval, uh, pauperization of you know, masses of people, uh, the Yeltsin years. And they don't want to go back to that. And so Putin has always portrayed himself as somebody who can guarantee stability and has got a lot of support for that reason. So I think the the overarching idea here has to be that um, there is a divide in Russia. Um, Obviously, not everybody believes that. Probably, you know, 50, 60 percent generally support Putin. Um, but there is a serious and large opposition that has coalesced around Alexei Navalny and is now uh, under severe pressure. And these are the people who are protesting and so on. But in general, I think it's fair to say that Russians value stability, are worried about external threats, 
um, Putin himself is very worried about being overthrown in a kind of a color revolution. And he has, you know, basically made his reputation and his political life around stability. So anything that threatens stability threatens him and uh, basically ends his, his regime. And do you think, do you believe that many Russians may conflate stability with, say, a more authoritarian government regime? Because the times that there hasn't really been authoritarian regime in recent history, it was democracy or somewhat semblance of a democracy and there's instability and pure and poor economic say performance right um yeah i mean this levada survey i'm referring to you know mm -hmm. looked at what people think are important in terms of a kind of a government and near the bottom of the list were things like protection of civil liberties um you know openness of a kind of a democratic system and so on so it's for most Russians, it's far less important than stability in their uh, economic lives, especially. And I don't know if um, if Putin is reflecting that or he's, um, in a sense, creating it. Um, but I, I will say again that the key uh, comparison is the chaotic Russia that existed from about 1990 to just over 2000 when Putin became president. And people don't want anything like that. That yeah, is they, kind of the nightmare scenario. Yeah, they associate extreme reform with instability and all these other unsavory, unappealing, undesirable aspects. Right, right. So a Reuters survey of 831 Americans found that 74% of them were in favor of establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine, over Ukraine. And this included broad support from both Republicans and Democrats. Are you concerned that the possibility of a no-fly zone and that the public may advocate strongly for it, but are unaware of the potential grave consequences that could come from uh, action such as that? Yeah, um, I, I think that's absolutely right. Most, most people you know, think, okay, we need to protect the Ukrainians from Russian attacks, and the no-fly zone sounds like an easy and quick option. But I'm pretty sure that that question did not elaborate exactly what a no-fly zone would be in terms of its consequences. And as many have pointed out, uh, it would mean um, American pilots shooting at Russian planes and vice versa. And it would get into a shooting war between the US and by extension NATO and Russia. And that would escalate very, very quickly. So, um, you know, it, it, it shows how the importance of surveys lies in the uh, accuracy of the questions and how they're posed and how they're framed. And I'm pretty sure that in this case, what seems like an easy option, or at least a, um, an option that everybody can support is reflected in that number, um, doesn't really elaborate the consequences. And my guess is if the consequences were elaborated and the um, extension of that question was to those who said, yes, I support an no-fly zone, well, would you support a no-fly zone if it got into a shooting war with Russia? Then the numbers would drop, I think, pretty significantly. Yes, I, I agree. And also in similar surveys, possibly such as that one and others, most Americans are adamantly against boots on the ground in Ukraine, which a right. no-fly zone could easily lead to. Right. It's it's boots in the air, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, do what are your thoughts on the figures in mainstream media? Do you believe that they have a duty per se to explain exactly what 
such things a no-fly zone are. And when you have uh, other figures such as Sean Haney saying that you bomb the convoy and they don't know it's us, do you think there's a due diligence from people in that industry, not just media, but also politicians such as Joe Manchin saying saying everything that saying the whole putting everything on the table so if you call for the no-fly zone say exactly what those consequences could lead to and if you call for say bombing a convoy explain that this would all obviously be connected back to us right um yeah i mean there's the term that's now uh, tossed around a lot is that there's a lot of uh, so-called virtue signaling and that means that you know people are showing their strong support for Ukraine. Obviously, it's hard to disagree in any way, shape or form that um, the West should do everything it can to support uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians against this Russian invasion. But the, how can I say, the the naivete and and the simplicity of the responses is is frightening. Um, There are some obviously clear-headed individuals and so far, I think the Biden administration has been quite clear-headed and accurate about this when they say you can't really get into a shooting war with Russia because of its escalating consequences, which could lead to this massive destruction, not only in Europe, um, but a confrontation between Russia and the US. And, you know, like a lot of things in American political life, it is reduced to sound bites and to simply um, very simple statements. And they don't really elaborate. There's not really much time to elaborate, I suppose, on television, but more importantly, um, the dangers of not elaborating are that the simple answers are the ones that people tend to grab and they don't um, kind of extend the uh, thinking to the consequences. And in this case, the consequences are nightmarish. I think it's the only way to put it. Great. And it's pretty much when you put your trust in someone and then they say something, you believe them, and you're not really looking too deep. I mean, I think most people do the same thing. I think majority of people in the world have someone in their lives that they trust very deeply. And if they told you to do something or they told you something to believe, you would believe it with little skepticism. And I think that's extremely problematic in today's, say, society, especially with people in the media who may very well possibly do not have the best motives or intentions for the American public overall. Well, it's not just motives and intentions. Uh, You know, you can say that they're not evil people or they're not uh, trying to twist for a political motive, Um, Mm -hmm. but still simplifying stuff can be dangerous, even with the best of intentions. So that's why um, I would urge that people think of okay, if we do this, then what is likely to happen next? And then on and on and on. And Mm -hmm. if you do that with respect to this conflict, it takes you to a very um, horrible end. And I think people need to consider that. According to the same Reuters report, 80% of Americans believe we should add additional sanctions to Russia, as well as ban oil, which we already did. But a majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, according to NBC article. Is it worrying that this public sentiment will backfire on the American people in regards to the gas prices skyrocketing, crude oil barrels now at 130 plus a barrel, and fuel prices are bound to go up as well? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the sanctions that have been placed obviously are enormous and 
very far-reaching and will cause widespread havoc and devastation in Russia. And you know, the, the question has been, did Putin plan for this? Did he set aside enough reserves to uh, head off the worst of the sanctions and head off any kind of possible protests in, in Russia that might threaten his regime? But in the US, um, you know, it's quite removed from the conflict in many ways. And compared to Europeans, Americans are, in a sense, quite protected against uh, Russian sanctions, uh, including any kind of um, response. So the way it will happen in the US uh, is obviously, as you said, um, prices at the pump are going up, um, but those prices, world, world oil prices will be passed through all kinds of consumer products and, and it'll add to inflation and will probably cause serious um, economic disruption, not just in the US, but in the world economy later in the year. I think the Biden administration, the West in general, is hoping that the sanctions in Russia will have a quite dramatic and immediate effect that will rein in Putin uh, before the full effects of the rebound on the European and American economies takes place uh, in the summer and later in the year. So that's their hope. But you know, there are obviously political consequences about this. And the midterm elections are you know, eight months away, seven months away. And um, if inflation is as high as it is now, and maybe even higher, and if um, especially the kind of prices that people you know, see at the gas pump and elsewhere are as high or higher uh, later in the year, then I think um, there will be significant backlash against the Biden administration, despite the fact that currently there is widespread support for their actions and their sanctions. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Russia is still getting about a billion dollars a day from its oil and gas sales to the West, mostly to Europe. And European leaders have said that they can't cut off those uh, imports from Russia um, because they're much more exposed. Um, you know, in many European countries, uh, more than half of the gas imports are from Russia. So, at, you know, in wintertime, this time of the year, um, that would be just a dramatic uh, impact on Europeans and the political consequences would be uh, really bad. So political leaders in Europe are not willing, can't really, for political reasons, take the um, steps that the US has taken. But I said, you know, when I talked to people a month ago, more than a month ago, when they asked about the consequences for Americans, I said, Americans are quite insulated from all of this relative to Europeans, uh, but they're not permanently insulated. And this is exactly what I expected to happen. And like we, as we previously mentioned, the full effects are not yet in place. And with that, do you believe public support will shift when the full effects start developing in America? And overall, do you think that this might have been a maybe jump of the gun of the sanctions as a whole? Because, I mean, personally, the way I see it, it's almost as you shoot yourself in the foot to stop your hand from hurting. And that's why I am... I'm more skeptical of all the, I'm in favor of sanctions, but I'm more skeptical of every single uh, sanction. I think every sanction and the consequences of those sanctions need to be discussed before being, say, enabled or put into um, effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, once you start an economic war, as Putin has called this, mm -hmm. uh, you don't really know how it's going to end and how it's going to play out. 
but certainly in terms of sympathy for Ukraine, and Zelensky has been, and, uh, has been very effective in calling on kind of external support for Ukraine. Um, he has obviously pushed really hard on the no-fly zone, um, but that's not going to happen, I don't think. And I also don't believe that um, there's going to be any change in the arming of Ukraine that is going to continue as much as the West can, can offer. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the sanctions can rebound and they can have unintended consequences, especially political consequences. And then the question is, will the public continue to support those sanctions in the face of um, effects on their own pocketbook? And I, I don't know. Um, my guess is we'll find out uh, in a couple of months whether the support for the sanctions begins to ebb uh, very quickly. Uh, or whether the um, public can continue to take the take the hit in the pocketbook in order to uh, fight this economic war with Russia. So when you you brought up uh, Zelensky and Ukraine, and with that, I was wondering, how do you think this war in Ukraine will reshape the geopolitics of the region? Say Sweden and Finland now being more in favor to join NATO, energy independence, military budgeting for certain uh, countries in Europe, maybe upscaling that from, from let's say, less than 3% to something a little higher? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I wouldn't get carried away with the uh, Sweden and Finland mm-hmm. um, because still it's it's not a majority. It's still, you know, the numbers have gone up from you know, 25, 30%, up to 50% in support of joining NATO. But again, that could be a temporary effect uh, of this conflict. Um, you know, neutrality has, has worked well for, for Finland especially. Um, but I think the overall change in Europe, yes, has, has occurred. Um, there's been a significant shift of opinion, especially in Germany, which has always been leery about military spending and was nowhere near the uh, NATO commitment. Um, and it has obviously agreed to vast increases in $100 billion in military, um, military spending. So that certainly has changed. Um, I think the main issue that most people um, understand at a, a deeper level is that Ukraine is by far the most important place to Russia on the European continent. And um, in a sense, Ukraine is unique and Ukraine is very unlike, let's say, Moldova. Uh, or the Baltics or anything else because of Putin's idea that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are essentially one nation. Uh, it's, it's a foolish idea, but one that obviously he, he believes in. And so um, I think what will happen is there'll be a much more uh, serious increase in military spending in NATO countries. But I think there'll also be a real uh, rethinking of this idea that any country that wants to can join NATO and generally NATO will welcome them in. Uh, Because up to now, I think the pushback against uh, NATO membership from Russia for countries in Eastern Europe hasn't been taken seriously by the NATO leadership. And I think this has really concentrated their minds. So any other country that applies to to join NATO, let's say Georgia, um, there'll be much more uh, serious thinking about what are the consequences of this in terms of future conflict with Russia. And that, that's an important change in Europe as well. You, how strong of a possibility do you think it is that this conflict 
boils over into other countries, neighbor countries such as Poland? Um, Russia doesn't want a war with NATO. Uh, Putin doesn't want a war with NATO. He knows that um, the NATO Article 5 guarantee would kick in and um, this would be kind of a, an apocalypse in terms of a conflict. So he's, he's desperately, I think, trying to keep NATO out. Um, I know that a lot of people in the Baltics are very concerned that they're next in line because after all, the Baltic Republics were part of the Soviet Union before that part of the Russian Empire. But I think he's bitten off far more than he can chew in Ukraine. And I think that has, if, he, if there ever was any ambition to um, tackle a NATO country, I think that's been put aside right now because he sees what the uh, united response is in NATO and something that he perhaps has been surprised by. So I, I don't think there's any concern about Poland or the Baltics uh, anytime soon. We're starting to see people come out and almost not fully dismiss Russia's military capabilities, but downplay them as, oh, this operation or war that they're waging isn't going nearly as successful as they planned, which is true, but they almost just dismiss how ugly the war can get. And I saw someone on Twitter say that Russia isn't a 12-foot giant, but they're also not a four-foot elf either. And you have to accurately assess them and their capabilities, which is they're holding back a lot of the military might. Do you think people have to be more aware of their artillery specifically capabilities and how they, if wanted, level of city such as Kiev, but that's just one of many cities in Ukraine. Yeah, um, I'm not, I'm no military analyst, obviously, but I mm-hmm. followed it pretty closely. And, um, you know, from what I see and read, uh, most analysts have been surprised by the Russian strategy. I, I'm actually not because um, my reading of Putin is that he, um, he misread completely Ukrainian public opinion and Ukrainian sentiment. And he thought that Russians would be welcomed uh, in Ukraine like they were in Crimea in 2014, uh, with, you know, greeted with flowers and, um, you know, just a, a big broad welcome to uh, Russian annexation of Crimea. And obviously that didn't work. He thought that he could send in lightly armed and small numbers uh, to essentially push Zelensky and the government out of Kiev and uh, was quite surprised by the Ukrainian resistance. So now it's kind of plan B, uh, which is to uh, surround cities, uh, you know, cut off uh, energy, water, sewer, food, everything, and basically browbeat them in submission. I saw today that uh, Kiev, which is an enormous city, I've been there many times, um, has, you know, close to 4 million people, but already half the population have left. And so you can imagine that the same thing will will happen in Kharkiv, uh, in Mariupol, in Odessa, if it's surrounded. And the idea there would be to do what Russia typically does in wars like this, like they did in Chechnya, um, surround the city, um, shell it, uh, terrorize population, force the surrender, and then um, take control. This is a long process. Uh, It's pretty bloody. Um, The full by the military analysts that I look at and respect, um, they say that the full power of the Russian 
um, military has not yet been unleashed. Um, they've counted, US um, has counted something like 400 missiles launched, 500 missiles launched uh, in Ukraine in two weeks, uh, which is a small fraction of the amount that could be launched. And I think he doesn't, in a sense, want to destroy the cities that he thinks uh, the population will be pro-Russia. And especially he's, he, I think, is um, very reluctant to severely damage Kiev, because after all, uh, the whole mentality is that Kiev is the birthplace of the Russian nation. And this goes back to Kievan Rus uh, over a thousand years ago, and it's filled with um, religious and historical sites that connect Kiev to Moscow, to the Russian nation. So it would be in a sense um, like the American military, I don't know, destroying Washington DC. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for, in his mind to uh, destroy a place that's so important and so uh, sacred to the Russian uh, national well-being, thinking, and history. Kiev, if I'm not mis mistaken, is the birthplace of the Russian Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah. And yes, and I think Poon, from what we're seeing so far, is as you put, reluctant to really unleash the full military might because he wants to be welcomed in and he sees it all as one, one kind, maybe not one state, but one nation. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, that's right. And if it's a, it's a weird mm -hmm. and uh, a, um, a very biased misreading, by the way, just to emphasize all of Ukrainian history, but um, it's, it, it's sort of saying, you know, I, I obviously can relate to this because I'm Irish. And so I can, it would be like uh, the British prime minister saying that the uh, British and Irish are one nation. And, uh, you know, most Irish people would reject that um, vehemently and say, yeah. well, yeah, just because you are in control of Ireland for 700 years doesn't mean that our national identity became British. No, we managed to retain it and um, push back and get our independence. And in many ways, there are lots of parallels between the Irish relationship to Britain and the Ukrainian relationship to Moscow. That's an interesting comparison you bring up, which I think of before. And in regards to how, say, being treated and how maybe they want to be perceived instead, you could draw similarities to it. Now, you said you spent time in Ukraine. And if I'm not mistaken, you also spent time years on end in the Soviet Union as well, correct? Uh, in the post-Soviet Union. Post-Soviet yeah. Union, yes. Yeah. Could you touch on the audience or touch on for the audience how your time there was in terms of the culture? What did you see? What did you pick up in regards like the main differences between American culture and Russian culture and just overall Eastern Europe? I started going to uh, the former Soviet Union in the early 90s when it became possible to do field work. And, you know, in Soviet times, of course, foreign researchers were essentially excluded from working on the ground in Russia and other parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, and so I, I always have always worked very closely with Russian colleagues, traveled with them, worked with them, wrote with them, did surveys with them, you know, very much mm. um, a collaborative effort. And, and one of the tragedies of this whole thing, of course, is the uh, breakdown in academic relations between Russian scholars and people in the West. And it's, it's you know, for me personally, it's a very uh, sad development. Um, but most of my travels in Russia and in the former Soviet Union are in conflict zones. 
So it's in the Caucasus, in, in the so-called North Caucasus of Russia, which is you know part of Russia, but um, very different area. This is the area near Chechnya, the Muslim part of Southern Russia, which had a very large um, uprising against the Yeltsin regime in the 90s, you know, de facto independence for Chechnya for a few years. And then Putin comes in and reverses all of that and takes back control of the region. So I've been there uh, quite a bit. I've been in uh, the breakaway areas of Georgia and Azerbaijan and Moldova all have these separatist uh, regions. And also, of course, in, in the Black Sea area and beyond actually in the Balkans and Bosnia as well. And the, the common theme and the common thread of, of this travel and this work is to examine uh, what's called ethno-territorial nationalisms, to, to see what motivates people to try and uh, claim their own territory and to um, the kind of consequences of the war in terms of people's attitudes towards their neighbors, to the people that they fought with, possibilities for post-conflict reconciliation, and also, of course, looking very closely at Russian support for these breakaway areas. Um, in terms of how kind of a comparison to the US, I mean, there's really no comparison because uh, there is no similar uh, region in the US like this. I mean, it, would, it would require going back to the 1860s to see the uh, attempted separation of the South um, in the, during the Civil War. Um, but in terms of um, kind of cultural practices and, and um, you know, differences, uh, I've always, always been impressed and um, really valued the welcoming uh, and the um, acceptance of uh, foreign scholars, you know, coming to these regions and, and uh, the support uh, from the locals um, and the willingness for political officials to do interviews and, and try and get their side of the story out. But many of these places are really uh, isolated politically and their uh, main contacts are with Russia and relatively few um, external contacts of any kind. So when somebody like me arrives, um, they tend to um, be more than happy to tell their side of the story um, and to, um, in a sense, allow the kinds of surveys that I do. I should stress that I, most of the data, most of the um, work that I do is really based on public opinion surveys. And that in itself is hard to organize, but it wouldn't happen unless uh, locals agreed, local officials agreed not to interfere with it because I obviously won't do surveys that are in any fashion controlled by political authorities. And from those surveys and from those conversations, assuming you probably have a pretty holistic view of how this plays out and probably is very disturbing and begrudging to see that this all and heartbreaking to see this war kind of continue or go on with the West and now and in Eastern Europe with Russia and now uh, Chechen forces are involved where you spent time in as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You're right. Um, it's not terribly surprising uh, because uh, in our surveys in Ukraine and in Donbass, you know, just in the last year, showed um, a very strong attachment to uh, a Ukrainian identity, uh, support for the 
Ukrainian independence, no consideration of any kind of, um, except for a small minority of uh, better um, integration with Russia. Um, And that was all very evident. And other surveys and, and ours too showed that there would be significant pushback against uh, and, and uh, fighting against any kind of Russian invasion. And that certainly has, has come about. Um, but I, I think the, the real outcome of this in many ways will be a real resentment of Russia and Russians by the Ukrainians. And you know, until 2014, Ukrainians had a very high positive opinion of Russians. And it's dropped significantly since 2014, since the war in Donbass started, since the annexation of Crimea. And of course, now it's going to plummet down even more so. Um, so I think the immediate impact in that sense will be a, almost a complete disruption between those two, those two nations, who, of course, Putin refers to as you know, the, same, the same nation, uh, but now that's gone on forever and to expand upon that do you believe that it's even like it's terrible to see that this almost xenophobic response from countries from around the world and the say just alienation of russians as a whole you saw that athletes couldn't compete in the paralympics russian athletes couldn't be in the paralympics you had a united states congressman eric swalwell call for the would be the word I'm looking for, uh, taking out, for lack of a better term, of all Russian students from college, from universities. And you also had, I think, believe Michelin Star, or Michelin, the uh, organization for restaurants, no longer include Russian, Russian restaurants. So this almost whole alienation of the nation to think that is like, like a pretty terrible path to go down and something that people in today's world usually would advocate against because it's not the Russian people who are for this war exactly or decide to go into this war. It was in the hands of a few. Well, it's the hands of Putin. It's Putin's war. And I think, um, you know, when uh, reporters and others say, you know, look what the Russians are doing in in Ukraine, uh, that should be rephrased to look what Putin is doing in Ukraine. It's his war. It's his baby in any respect. I hadn't heard that comment from Swabra, but it's awful. And, um, you know, I have a Russian student, PhD student, who, um, you know, is, would be a target of, of that uh, if it were to be implemented. I saw the same thing happening, by the way, in um, the, around 1980, when American hostages uh, in Iran, um, well, Americans were taken hostage in Iran uh, in uh, 1980. And at the time, uh, Iranian students in the U.S. had to uh, do uh, extra re- registration um, with usually uh, local FBI offices and so on and so forth. They were kind of viewed and targeted as potential uh, enemies. And, and this is nuts um, because most of the Russians in the U.S. who are attending American universities hate Putin and uh, want nothing to do with him. And in a sense, it would be uh, targeting the victims rather than targeting the person who's responsible for it. So I'm, I'm actually horrified to hear that. I didn't, I hadn't heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was by it's just, awful. Yeah. Clarify Eric Swalwell, 
who was a United States congressman. Yeah, but, yeah, I know he is. Yeah, yeah, I just want to confirm for the audience that we're interested to say another time. But uh, I couldn't agree more. And it's something that you see in, as you said, in um, with Iran in 1980, but also, say, with uh, Japanese citizens back in World War II. Out, right. out, out of thin air came these internment camps from. And it's nothing less than xenophobic or xenophobia as a whole that you get this fear and this anger to these to a group of people that have nothing to do with where your actual grievances lie and that's right it's a it's a really a visceral reaction and you know yesterday um the association for slavic and east european studies um which has a lot of uh, russian and ukrainian uh, scholars but it's Mm -hmm. based in pittsburgh um, you know, they and some other organizations, you know, put out a, a statement saying, you know, we condemn Putin's actions completely and, and as, as much as we possibly can. But we also need to protect and uh, keep contacts open with individual Russian scholars and not target them because um, you know, they don't want anything to do with this war. And, um, you know, in a, in a way, uh, isolating them and pushing them back to Russia um, would fit what Putin wants, which is to, in a sense, break links with the West and to reduce uh, any kind of academic and other uh, interchanges with the West. So, you know, it's playing into his hands in many respects. The the people who are leaving Russia now are the dissidents, the people that he doesn't really want in Russia. They're the ones who are leaving in, in fairly sizable numbers, as far as I understand. And what it would do is create an isolated um, Russia even more um, in the future. And and it would be back almost to um, the kind of Soviet years of a complete lack of any kind of uh, interaction between the West and and Russia. That would be a bad scenario. And it's almost by the West's doing. And that's not to say that I'm not in favor of sanctioning the oligarchs, Putin himself, any other key government officials, anyone who is remotely accountable for the actions going on or benefit greatly from the actions going on or corruption. But as you see historically, say with Iran, when you sanction a country pretty harshly, that doesn't exactly do what, that doesn't fit into your goals overall. When you look at Venezuela, it's not like Maduro's not in charge anymore he's still there it's just the people who are suffering the most and i agree overall with the the set the sentiment of these sanctions and these broad sweeping sanctions and not just like little ones broad sweeping sanctions across all industries but at the end of the day you have to look at the consequences both for here at home but also in the country that you're targeting them at because it's not like poon's not gonna be able to afford to eat his dinner it's going to be that average family of, say, four that is having trouble buying groceries. And as, yeah, as we're both touching on, yet you hold people accountable, but you should be holding the right people accountable. Yeah, and that's the problem with sanctions. I mean, the idea is to cause such pain and resentment on the part of the public that they'll rise up and overthrow their government. But that assumes that people aren't uh, frightened uh, and terrorized into um, staying at home and keeping their heads down. And, you know, Russia has a sizable, uh, they're called Siloviki, a security um, state. Um, you know, 
the estimate I saw is that there are well over 2 million people working in the security state in Russia out of a working population, let's say of 60 million or so. So one in 30, you know, is kind of working uh, for the police or for uh, some kind of state security services and it has a lot of power and it's obviously willing to use it. And there are serious repercussions uh, with long jail terms, uh, with the ending of any kind of career. Um, it, it's really a risk to take part in public protest. Um, and obviously there are some brave people. I, I've seen you know, probably over 10,000 have been arrested in the protest so far, but this is a tiny, tiny number in a population of over 140 million. And um, the hope of the sanctions or those who propose and push sanctions is that they wish to increase significantly the number of protesters and take down Putin. But, you know, that'll be a while if it, if it happens. And the way I saw it, it's almost as a Stockholm syndrome type effect, where if you cut off Russia, make it a prior state, then the people will only see Putin as like, or the government as a provider. They're not going to, in my opinion, rise up against the only thing that may keep them going in terms of aid, whatever like humanitarian aid that they can give or any other outside organization. So you cut off a state, you let the people, you hope the people rise up against their uh, government. But at the same time, if they don't have access to say Facebook, Twitter, or any kind of social, like, any information, any news, and they're starving and the government's the only people there providing even a semblance of like, food or gas or any kind of um, like living in terms of employment, then why would you jeopardize that? Right. Yeah. And a lot of people are relying on state pensions and other hmm. state supports. And yeah, you're right. Why would you attack the, the very provider that is helping you? It doesn't make sense. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the, the thing that um, I think a lot of people don't understand is how controlling how pervasive the Russian state is in the daily lives of people. And it's not, um, it's not chaotic. Um, the, there is still um, a lot of support for Putin's war. Uh, the most reliable estimates show that about half uh, show uh, supporting this, this attack on uh, Ukraine. Um, that will probably go down as casualties rise or more importantly, as news of casualties uh, rise because uh, obviously um, Putin and the government is trying to control the uh, news about casualties. But in the end, um, you would have to have a just a widespread sense of dissatisfaction with the state to cause the kind of revolution to overthrow the government that the West is hoping to see. And I don't see anything like that right now uh, in Russia, uh, despite all of the reports of, um, you know, kind of young people, especially people living in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the people who didn't support Putin anyway. Um, they're the ones who are protesting, they're the ones who are risking their careers and, and long jail terms, but they don't represent uh, average Russians. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate our conversation. Your insights are very appreciated, and I think by myself, but also the audience and thank you for the expertise you lended as well in terms of what could happen and what is currently, say, the effects of what's being put into place. So once again, thank you for being Welcome. on the podcast and having this conversation with me. And 
just thank you. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Enjoy your week and talk to you guys soon.